I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Hello and thanks for downloading Outspoken, the podcast that brings you the very best of our daily Talk Sport show. On today's episode, England legend Stuart Pearce joined myself and Simon following a big weekend of sporting action. We hear from Roy Hodgson after his Palace side made it three wins from three. And with delays to the Grand National, the protesters behind the disruption joined us live to explain their reasonings. Everywhere you look at the moment in the Premier League, there are stories, stories abounding. Some good, some not so good, some very good. At Crystal Palace, the story is very good. How has Roy Hodgson transformed Crystal Palace? I mean, when he took charge, uh, they were without a Premier League win in 2023, uh, only had scored one goal in five matches. In comes Roy, out goes Patrick Vieira, no disrespect to Patrick. Back-to-back wins over Leicester, Leeds, Southampton. Palace this morning, 12th. Nine points clear of the relegation zone. Roy Hodgson, you have the Midas touch, sir. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. Good morning to you. Simon's with me, so too Stuart Pierce. Roy, congratulations for what you've done thus far. How have you found it since you went back in there? Well, I found it very, very good indeed. I mean, it's uh, an incredibly good group of players, I think, that the club has put together. Um, I knew, of course, many of them, uh, the uh, a very solid base of players that I worked with when I was there and had great respect and admiration for. But of course, the new ones or the younger ones have been brought in since I left the club have all been very, very impressive. So it's made for a very strong group of players. The competition for places is, is, is strong. And of course, it's players that win four matches. And uh, that's been my good fortune to find that there is a good group of players here who are capable of winning four matches. Roy, what's, what's the first thing you look for when you when you go into a club? Not necessarily Palace as you've walked in now, but any job you go into, is there one thing that you look for first when you go through the door? That's a really good question, that one, Stuart, isn't it? I mean, I think probably the first thing that any manager, or <laughs> perhaps in these times more than ever, uh, is support. I think you need to go in there knowing that the people who've asked you to do the job 
actually do want you to do the job and that they've chosen you for the right sort of reasons and they are then going to be prepared to get behind you because obviously you can't guarantee that when you go into a new job you're going to start in the way that we've started here that's that's the dream quite often and the reality is very different but i do always hope i'm going to find a group of players who share the same sort of enthusiasm and passion for the game that i've always had myself and that who accept that we're not going to get out of a situation or be successful in any situation unless we're really prepared to work hard and to get on board, if you like, with anything that we're being asked to do in terms of team play. Um, that's something which I found when I first came to Palace all those years ago and some of those players who I respected and admired so much and did such a wonderful job for the club, I think, during those four years. They're still there and going strong, and they've been a big, big help for Ray and I coming into the club with the new players because it's a, a further endorsement, if you like, from them of the message we're trying to put across. Did, when you went in, Roy, for a second spell there, did you look at them and did you honestly think, now we can do this? I like the look of them. I like the sound of them. We can get out of this. Did you think that then? Yes. I mean, to be fair, they had an unfortunate spell, but I mean, I think that the, there was a, a, a solid core of players in that team and I think the new ones that I'd been able to watch for a year and a half without actually getting to know them, I could see they were really, really talented players. So I, I did know that the quality to play in Premier in the Premier League was, was there at the club. Um, and it was just a, a, a hope, I suppose, that we would be able to bring out the best qualities that we knew they had and get them to believe that they were good enough and were good enough to win matches. It's an easy thing to say, but... And Eddie Coach says it, and I'm always aware of these days, whenever I talk, I'm only saying what everyone else says. But I suppose it, it's because uh, the game isn't that complicated and to have any success at all, you need good players, there's no question of that, and good players who believe in themselves and good players who want to be at the club, who want to follow the ideas that uh, the coach and the manager are selling to them and are prepared to work hard to bring that about. I mean, once you've got those things, you have got a, a winning team. But if we could all get those things, <laughs> every club we went to, then there wouldn't be any, exactly. any things left. Then yeah. might have a job forever. <laughs> Roy, I'm, I'm just looking, you know, you're sort of, you've got a long history in management, and then you've taken a step away from it. Do you think that there's a there's a role for someone with your experience, a safe set of hands, to be that short-term impact manager? I don't know what you'll do beyond the end of this season. I've no idea. But do you think there's... Like, here's my number. If you're in trouble, ring me. I'm a safe set of hands. I've got great experience. And you're on the end of a phone call from anyone at the uh, any reaches that, that you need to bring someone of your experience through the door. I don't think there's such a thing as a safe set of hands. I've got to be perfectly honest with you. I think experience obviously plays a part, but so often you don't realise what your experience can do for you until you find yourself in a particular situation. And then maybe something will will strike you from the past where you've either made a good or a bad decision that will help you make the next one. But I don't believe there's safe sets of hands. I do believe that there are probably older managers out there who can still do a good job if 
you know, given given the uh, responsibility, either for longer or shorter periods of time. And, and um, but I, I, I would probably want to stay away from situations where I would be uh, running my football club with a with a safe set of hands in the background. I think that's not the way to do it. Um, it's been done on this occasion, and uh, I've been given the opportunity and the responsibility, and I'm really pleased to, to take it. But you know, I did have those four years at Crystal Palace in, in not the easiest of situations, trying to keep the club in the league. So, to some extent, asking me maybe to come back was a little bit different to just going out to maybe try and find someone who's who's quite old and had a few games behind him to take the charge, take charge of the team for a period of time. Culturally, Roy, when you walk back into Palace, <clears throat> the allegations that were being made about Palace prior to you going back in there was that they were very passive and, and ultimately, <clears throat> the moment any adversity came their way, then Palace would not be able to respond to it. The, the game against Brighton, they were good in the first 20 minutes, Brighton scored and all of a sudden Palace weren't in the game anymore. Now that seems to have materially changed. Um, you've had you've had adversity against Leicester when they've equalised. You've had adversity against Leeds when they went in front against you. What what have you materially changed in the culture? I saw Wilfred Zaha the other day at the Anthony Joshua fight, who seemed to be in in very good humour, albeit that he was injured at the Leicester game. But what have you changed? What you and Ray have done? Have something something been said or something's been changed amongst this group of players to make them respond slightly differently to what they were doing for Vieira? Another very different question, Simon. I mean, I, I don't know that you go in and you, you do specific things which are very different because, you know, the job of coaching and training and preparing a team for matches is a very professional thing and, and it was being done professionally before we came to the club. I'm sure of that without, if I have no doubt about it at all. So <clears throat> it isn't as easy, perhaps, of finding the right thing to say but I do believe very much in environments. I think that, that you, you do need to try and work hard as a coach, and this isn't something which is particularly specific to to me now and Crystal Palace now. It's something I've really believed in all of my coaching life, and that is that that you know your job, if you like, is to to sell your ideas to players, to try and convince them that you know if if you work this way and do these things in training and and conduct yourself in this way and we all do it together, we're going to have success. But to do that, you've got to create the right environment. I've always believed that the environment's very important. And of course, to get a really good environment, what you need is to win matches. But you've got to, in some ways, (laughs) I think, certainly during the course of any season, find a way of maintaining a, a good environment where people do want to come to work. Well, let me repackage the question, Roy, then, and, and ask it a different way. There was clearly something wrong because Palace were going through games, they went through three or four games about a shot and goal. They were going through a run of form and some might say that the fixture list was unkind to them and some might say the fixture list has been kind to you because the games that people are arguing, people like Martin Keown that will be in the Vieira camp say that these games could have been won by Vieira. But what was it, what was it that you saw that was wrong when you walked through the door? It wasn't as much a question of perhaps what I saw that was wrong because I, I didn't search for things that were wrong. I just searched to do what I thought I needed to do and wanted to do. Really, the decision with regard to Patrick was, was totally out of my hands. It was a decision made by the club, and the club obviously saw things that were going on that they did think they needed to, to address. So 
I sort of stay away from the question, really, because I certainly like the biopathic like everybody else. Uh, I don't want to say anything that would suggest that, you know, what he did wasn't right, and now suddenly I come in and it's all right uh, from this moment on. I don't want to say that at all. It certainly isn't a question of fixture lists and who you play against, because, you know, anyone really who's been in the game seriously knows that, at this level of football, games might look easy or might look hard, but in fact they are all hard. You know, you see teams like, like uh, even yesterday, you see Man United not exactly rolling over Nottingham Forest, and you see West Ham coming back and dominating the Arsenal for a large period of the game. These are games which, if you just want to do it on paper, you say, "Well, this is easy. <laughs> You're going to win that one." You don't win matches by looking at the table. You win matches by giving performances on the day. And unfortunately, often those games where people expect you to have an easy game, they're often the hardest ones. I'm just looking at it, Roy. I mean, the team's recorded 57 shots, 18 on target in the last three games. I mean, you go for it, don't you? I mean, you, you encourage the players to go out there and show what they can do and go for it. Nothing negative or in any way restrained about your approach. That's for sure. Well, we did that for me. <laughs> we did that during our four years at the club, but with a lot less success. Uh, there's no question. It wasn't a question of attitudes or, or changing. We we were working just as hard during those four years, and in fact, doing a lot of most of the same things in terms of our patterns of play and trying to get to trying to get people into the right scoring positions and to, into the right areas. Mm. But we didn't we didn't score anywhere near as many goals during that period of time, except the first year where we had a uh, perhaps a stronger team on paper Yeah but, It may be wrong to single anybody out Roy But Eze looks fantastic doesn't he it Calls for Gareth to have a closer look at him I mean he's one who really has Come to the fore in recent weeks Yes He's been very very good I mean obviously I suppose to some extent He, he felt a certain affiliation When Ray and I came into the club Because we you know, we, we brought him to the club And also Doug 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 Friedman, of course, identified him. We looked as, as well and said, yeah, we think you've spotted a good one there, Doug, and the club were able to buy him, which was probably the only serious acquisition we made during the whole of those four years. And uh, I was really pleased that, to, to you know, hook up with him again. Yeah. Because I've always believed he's, he's a, a very good player. He's got a great talent. And I suppose that uh, in this environment with the younger players around him, and you know, we certainly have a lot more athleticism and a lot more pace in the team perhaps than we, we had in my earlier spell, I think it's suiting into the ground. But, you know, I think all coaches, if they're, if they're honest, I don't think you'll find many that want to shackle their good players. You know, everyone wants their good players to, to come to the fore and, and do what they can do. But maybe to get that, the one thing all coaches need to do, I think, is to give players the feeling that if it's going to go wrong, it's not going to work out with them trying to do what they perhaps want to do and you're encouraging them to do. They've got to feel that you're going to support them afterwards and that they're not going to come in afterwards. In the next post-match, you're going to highlight all the all the mistakes they've made in the game. They've got to feel that you've got their back. Sure. That this is what we want you to do. This is what we think you can do. Uh, in these situations, you have got to really try and show us your skills, and if it doesn't work out, you know, the shot goes wide or you, you blaze a great chance over the crossbar or you dribble and lose the ball and the opponent score, 
we're not going to come to you and say, you know, you shouldn't do that. We're going to be consistent in our message, which is this is what you should do. This is what we think you can do. So you've got to do it to the best of your ability all the time. And the one thing I like it. Did you have a did you have a wry smile, Roy, when what was considered not good enough two years ago was considered good enough to salvage the club's decline in this season when you got the call? Well, I didn't, uh, you know, that's, that's your interpretation of what was considered not good enough two years ago. I mean, the fact is, every match or every year that you work at a club, you work in certain circumstances. And I've got to say that I I probably am as proud, if not prouder, of that last year at Crystal Palace where we, you know, we had 29 points after, after uh, we had 39 points after 28 games. Not for the fact that you it's know, very diplomatic, Roy. But we both know, as a former chairman to a manager, if someone doesn't renew your contract, this is because at that particular time they don't believe going forward it's going to be of mm. of use to them. But the point I was making, and you're being an internal diplomat, which probably is one of your great your greatest skills, <laughs> is that there wasn't a race smile, smile. You were happy to go back in and help Steve out. Yes, and what's more, I didn't want my contract renewed. I actually came to the club three months, I think it was, or two and a half months before the end of that season and said to Steve and Doug that I would not be asking them to renew my contract because I decided at that time that the club needed something new. They needed a new voice. But our four years at the club, I and I have been very good to us and we've really enjoyed our time there, but we thought it was time to hand the reins over. So I never had any fears about my contract not being renewed or people saying, we want to get rid of you because we don't think you're good enough. Yeah. Um, I think it was the right moment to do it. And I think the club, you know, maybe they even happily accepted that. But I mean, the point is that it was a, a decision that, that was made, which I thought was right for both parties. But suffice to say, Roy, your, your reappointment, you've done precisely what I anticipated you would do. When they turned to you to get them out of this particular conundrum, whatever that conundrum was, and there was no allegation, by the way, that you aren't a, a very good manager, because no doubt you are. That wasn't the point I was making. But you have done precisely what I anticipated you would do, which was get the results to get Palace into a position. So, well done, you. Yeah, right, terrific. Honestly, terrific. It's great to speak to you. You're so generous with your time as well, Roy, because I know you will have a, a, a mountain of things to do this morning. Uh, I think not, not, Palace not really, fans are thrilled, Roy. I'll have, to, I'll have to sort of uh, question that one. I don't know that I am that generous with my time when it comes to interviews. <laughs> I do them all reluctantly and uh, <laughs> I never really put myself forward. Um, the reason I agreed to speak this morning because I thought probably my dear pal Danny might be on the, on the programme and I didn't want to let him down. <laughs> um, but, uh, not today, but I, Roy. Murphy's on a Wednesday. I'm not keen on uh, talking as much. I much prefer the fact that I'm back working on a day-to-day basis where I want to be on the training field with the players. And if you could guarantee me the same success with with that and tell me, and by the way, you won't have to do any interviews and you won't have to talk and explain anything <laughs> anymore, I'll happily accept that. <laughs> we won't, because we like chatting to you. Right, well done. Keep it going. Terrific stuff. And thank you so much for joining us. All right, Jim. All the best. Stuff. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. One of the headline stories today has been before, during and after the event at Aintree on Saturday. The event, of course, no prizes for guessing. It was a grand national at Aintree. More than 100 animal rights activists were arrested after Grand National protests on Saturday. Some of them uh, invaded the Grand National course itself and forced the start of the race to be delayed by a quarter of an hour. Thereafter, the story is not good because obviously the race was run But since that, we have found out that uh, three horses are no longer with us. Uh, They died after competing in the race itself. So now, of course, fresh calls for this event to be scrubbed from the calendar completely. Not only that, other events like it. Events in general where animals come into play. Simon and Stuart are with me, and so too I'm delighted to say, joining us live in studio this lunchtime, one major voice against the running of this race, Animal Rising spokesperson Alex Lockwood. Alex, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. No, delighted you could join us. Uh, There is a big call in your time at the moment. Everybody's wanting to hear from you guys. First of all, can I put you right in the spot? Were you one of the activists at Aintree? No, I stayed in London to do this work, this media work, in terms of getting the conversation out there about why we were there, uh, the needs to bring an end to anything that exploits animals and the solutions that we have actually that we want to have conversations about and lead forward with. Understood. So did you coordinate the protests with the, the, the view to cause maximum disruption? We, we, we were there for two reasons. One, to disrupt the race and two, to get this national conversation going about the way that we treat animals. And we're really sad that we couldn't stop the deaths. I mean, that, that, is, that is absolutely terrible. But we are glad that actually now we are finally having this conversation as a country about how we treat animals, whether that is at the horse racing or whether it's in the food system or anywhere where we no longer need to use animals. And of course, the three deaths were across the, the three days, not just the one race. But what you are seeing basically, Alex, is 
uh, in your words, the dangerous institution of the Grand National should have been retired long ago. Yes, that, that's completely right. And yet those <clears throat> in the sport will say these these horses are treated with enormous respect. They have they, they have everything they need. They lead a great life. I heard AP McCoy uh, on TalkSport. I've heard various people speaking since the race itself. You simply will not entertain that thought. We're we're not um, we're not interested in slow incremental welfare improvements over decades that reduce the death rate by a small percentage. What we're interested in is having this conversation that we do not need to exploit or harm animals in any way. I mean, imagine if you had a luck. You know, people say they love the horses, and, and we and you know we accept that the the jockeys, the trainers, the stable hands, they have these relationships with these incredible beings. But imagine if you've got a loved one in a care home and they're incredibly well cared for and then someone comes into that room and pushes your loved one out of a window and they fall and break their neck. What was the point of all of that high welfare care? And that is horse racing. That is the model of horse racing. So the Grand National has five and a half times a higher death rate than the industry average. So a trainer putting their horse into that race knows that they've got that much higher chance of death. A horse in the industry dies every other day um, and 50 have died since the start of this year. You know, that is not a high welfare standard. That's a scandal that the British public are interested in talking about. Well, Alex, uh, racing commentator Richard Hoyles <coughs> joins us live in the show. Uh, Richard, good afternoon to you. You've heard Alex from Animal Rising. Uh, what's your take on what he's saying? Yeah, let's just try and break some of this down, Jim, because we get these numbers banded about without any context and without sort of thinking through exactly what they are talking about. I mean, at least Alex has been open and honest and said that the objective of Animal Rising is clearly well beyond racing. And it was a shame that he chose the uh, prestige of the national, if you like, in order to try and uh, enhance the publicity, which they've been very successful at. Racehorses are bred to race. There are 14,000 in the UK currently. So even though the numbers seem shocking in terms of the deaths, it is 0.2% from 90,000 runners over the course of a year. Now, it can never be eliminated risk within sport and racing, but it can be reduced. And those numbers have been coming down significantly by a third in the last 10 years or so. But the point I want to constantly press Animal Rising and Alex on is what are you going to do with the horses? Because if you abolish racing, you have 50,000 thoroughbreds in the UK at the moment, 15,000 of which are in training. If you remove their primary purpose because 0.2% meet their end, the 99.8% are going to be unleashed into the community. And that is a far bigger welfare scandal than anything that would happen on a race course. When we talk about stats, it makes us sound very cold. No one, no one will feel the loss of Hill 16 more than Sandy Thompson, the horse's groom, and Jimmy Fife, the owner, for whom it was an ambition to have a runner in the Grand National. The horses that are bred to race, they are prepared like athletes. They're not mollycoddled. They are not pets. And anybody who feels that if you remove the objective for which they are bred, that you would not extinguish the breed, really needs to think through their logic. Richard, can you understand why Alex and, and others at Animal Rising take the stand, strong stance they take? Um, I don't in terms of their logic through to the end product of um, where you what you do with the racehorses. I do in terms of the fact that I do genuinely feel, Jim, that we have slightly more in common than it's ever been sort of acknowledged in the sense it is the welfare of the horse that is the heart for both of us. But where I have the issue with the sort of rather hysterical sort of care home analogy is that the real 
concern for horse welfare occurs by the side of the road or in waterlogged fields round the back where malnourished horses aren't being capable of being cared for properly, often by well-intentioned people. And yet the solution that appears to be offered is to multiply that welfare by thousands. Welfare is absolutely paramount if we're going to get a social license to continue racing. And the fact that we were able to bypass fences, which we wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago, the fact that we had runoff areas for loose horses, all of which helped contribute to the safety. Right. It was an uncomfortable watch. And that was because in any race where a large number of horses fall early, the chaos factor is magnified. Richard, what did you say to people? People are getting in touch. A number of messages. Sorry to interrupt you. Get rid of the fences. Get rid of the fences. Well, yes, I mean, that's flat racing and there are a whole different set of horses. You know, the longest flat race is two miles, the shortest, well, the longest usual flat race. There are a few that are greater than that, but up to two miles. National hunt racing, they're older horses, they're greater than two miles. So, yes, that might uh, keep the breeding industry for flat horses, but it wouldn't do for jumpers. And horses okay. are natural jumpers. The other side um, of this, you know, break, I'm going to bring in Simon and Stuart, but before that, Alex, how do you want to push back on what Richard's saying? Because he's not having your argument, he's not having you. Yeah, no, I get that. I understand that. I mean, this is an industry in which he works and and is and is you know engaged, and I can understand where he's coming from. Actually, I don't agree that we're both interested in the welfare of the horse. We're interested. Animal Rising is interested in the well-being and the life of the horse. Solutions-wise, let's ask the betting industry to put its hands in its deep pockets and actually help retire these horses in a way where we can actually find love and care for them that doesn't put them in harm's way. There are solutions. And what I find really frustrating is that people are so unimaginative that they cannot see beyond the existing status quo where we can only enjoy these animals by putting them at great risk or when we can only enjoy these animals by, for example, keeping them in stables for 22 hours a day where they begin to show pathologies and weaving their heads you know that isn't that isn't high welfare that isn't giving you know love to the animals you know so we're we're about like asking these big questions in society healthy democracies change through conversation through dialogue so i'm really pleased to have you here and listening and engaging i'm really delighted you are here Stuart, take me to the break you've had experience of working with horses can you see both sides of the argument yeah i I never grew up with horses when i was a kid but at the age of 21 I, i met somebody that horses were their life and i married into that family that love horses i've been around the national hunt scene probably for 30 years of my life and from the inside and my, my daughter's an event rider so I, i'm interested to know i would you outlaw not just the uh, national hunt racing would that be flat racing would it be event rate riding as well what's that, your that overall aim alex our overall aim is to reach a society in which we have a, a healthier relationship with animals in the natural world and what and where we really want to start is in the food system because that's where the biggest suffering is and what we want is when that when that relationship changes to actually then look at all of these other cases so my mother was also uh, owned a share in a horse she 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 loved the horses you know she worked in a bookies she had her hen do at Epsom Derby so I understand the attachment I understand the complexities of these relationships what we want to get to a point of is where across society we have relationships with other animals where we're not breeding them into existence for profit where we're not making them suffer and where actually the love that is given to them is actually in a way that sees them live a whole life long but your belief is animal rising wanted to stop the race before it started absolutely that's what we were there to do are you going to continue to do that at other events we're we're planning a summer of activities to keep the spotlight on our treatment of animals i think as well jim i mean 
I've had an insight inside racing, and and I've got to tell you the love of horses from people that are involved in it, whether it be trainers, whether it be grooms, whether it be owners like my ex-wife. You know, mm, yeah, the love for those animals is stronger than the love for people. And you would concede that that is true. I, I do concede that that's true. But what what's really interesting is these ways in which we then. Uh, make compromises as human beings. So I love you, but I'm going to send you out, and you're probably going to you may die. We're well, all sides that, of the argument. Pretty risky. All sides of the argument, and we'll keep with it. We're back after this. 100% engagement. Outspoken with White and Jordan. We saw uh, 100 animal rights activists, 100 plus, uh, arrested after Grand National protests at the weekend up in that part of the country. Some invaded the Grand National course, forced to start the race to be delayed by a quarter of an hour. We have uh, well-respected racing commentator Richard Hoyles with us here in studio on the 17th floor of the news building alongside Simon Stuart Pearson, myself, Animal Rising spokesperson Alex Lockwood is with us. Alex very much calling for change. Alex very much not having uh, the Grand National as an event and promising that uh, future race meetings will be disrupted from this point onwards by animal rights activists, those members of Animal Rising. Simon, where do you stand on this? Um, Because obviously a massive difference of opinion from the likes of Alex to the likes of uh, Richard Hoyles, who's obviously involved in the racing world. Mm. Stuart Pierce has had his say. What's your take on this? Because Alex Alex right here and now, Alex Lockwood is saying, yeah, and this is just a start. We'll be back. We'll disrupt again and again and again. Well, look, I mean, I have no great love of the horse racing industry. Um, I don't enjoy it particularly as a sport. I spent a lot of time last week with AP McCoy having a debate about the mechanisms that are deployed for the value of a horse in the equation rather than the jockey. I bought... Roulette, which won the 2008 um, uh, Olympic silver for Ben Maher um, in the equestrian events at the Beijing um, Olympics. Yeah, I find these groups irksome and irritating. I think the media give them oxygen. Um, I look at their overriding and overarching agenda, which is about sustainability and about plant-based diets and how we build up our, uh, our outlook to the world that we live in and to a settled, in their mind, climate crisis, which is not scientifically settled in mine. Um, I don't think they answer the questions properly when you talk about 99.8% of horses operating in a certain way and we talk about the statistics of 0.2. I think it's a ridiculous, preposterous, visceral, emotive analogy to suggest that comparing an elderly relative in an old people's home um, to a horse uh, that's being bred and trained you wouldn't expect Granny to be thrown out of the window. No, of course not. She's not trained and prepared to perform in that particular You push uh, back scenario. in that, Alex. You'd say, yeah, no, sure. it is relevant. It is relevant because what, what, it, what it highlights, if you're saying it's preposterous, is the I gap... I think it's hyperbole. It, well, what you're, what you're essentially bringing the attention to is that we treat animals like products. We treat them like bread property. We don't treat humans like that. And yet, on the other hand, you've got Stuart saying people love their horses more than the... the you know, people love their horses more than people. So which is it? Do you know what I mean? Either we really love these animals and we care for them properly or we treat them like products. We buy them, you know, like you There is a said. balance to be struck. There is a balance to be struck. You're not looking for a balance. The horse racing industry has to adapt and has to adjust and is adjusting and you're saying you're not interested. 
You want to superimpose your beliefs and your values and what you think is important over the majority of people's views on things. I mean, that isn't true itself. Well, it is. Because what we're here to do is have the conversation. What you're here to do is shock and awe. And unfortunately, and tragically for my belief, the media are giving you your opportunity. But it's a peaceful movement, Simon. Well, Animal Rising is a peaceful movement. Well, it's not, really. It's centred in disruption. It's it's centred in some form of civil disobedience to gain attention. And tragically, for this generation of media... We want to give these people this time and light. Of course, and it, because it's newsworthy. Richard, what would you say at this stage? We're hardly going to ignore it, are we? Uh, more than 100 of Alex's colleagues are, are, are arrested at the weekend. Well, that, that makes news. We didn't make the news. They made the news. Yes, and the peaceful aspect, when 100 plus um, were arrested at the weekend, obviously has to, has to be questioned. And the idea to disrupt the race when the horses were actually in their final stages of preparation, which both Stuart in particular, with no doubt his daughter, will realise is a crucial stage, the horse knows what's coming next, just showed another lack of understanding of the relationship that those that work with horses actually genuinely have with them. And that's the thing that I find most annoying, is this sense that they know better and we've got a broken relationship The relationship between man and horse within the racing industry goes back a couple of hundred years. There is nothing broken about that. Society now doesn't use the horse in the same way. If we'd grown up a hundred years ago, the horses were integral. They were transport. Um, They also pulled plows. Everybody saw a horse. Now in urban environments, people don't. They don't really understand. They think they're pets, but they are not. They are racehorses. Mm. They are bred with that specific purpose. And all I would just say on the welfare grounds, because this is really important, because it takes them on at their own game. It strips out the hyperbole. You've heard today what the objectives are, and they're using racehorses as the mechanism to try and amplify some completely different issues. The relationship between us and the horse in the racing industry is always absolutely fundamental. You cannot go around killing the raw material willy-nilly. No one feels the loss is greater. And if you genuinely feel, we haven't answered the question, where you're going to find people to care 50,000 horses if you took away their purpose. We've got to think outside the box. Where are we going to find people, Alex? I mean, Stuart, yeah. let me just ask Stuart. No, just if I, I can come back on that, actually, you? Richard, like before yeah, we go I on. Like, yeah, but I mean, you cannot Stuart, make, can ask, I've been asked ask to come back on that, Richard. I've been asked to come back on that. So, Alex, wait one second. Do it briefly, Richard. Do it briefly. Yeah, I will do. I was just going to just ask. The preparation, Stuart, that's required to get the horse that your daughter competes to to get that level, would you be happy if that just went to someone else and that's future? Would you? How, people don't understand, do they, the actual requirements, the nature, the needs of a racehorse? No, I've never had a, a horse or an, an event horse, if you like, uh, die on the track or wherever, but I know that... If that was the case, we'd be absolutely crestfallen if that was the case. We've had racehorses that have, have competed, they've raced, they've had a racing career, and then they've seen their time out on our yeah, land yeah, as such and yeah. been catered for really well. Simon, you're with me here, Richard. Simon, you're always a great man for balance, and you're absolutely right to be that way. So give us balance, Alex. Okay. Could, you, could you predict a future? that you can make your point, but it won't involve full-scale disruption. You, you, as I said earlier, I wish we had the power to change the relationship we have with animals right now so that it stops them being property. To come back to Richard's points about sort of, you know, um, we our relationship with animals remain, re, 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 is still as 
one of owners and owned. It's still of dominance and dominated because we own them as property. That gives us humans the right to do whatever we want with them. And Richard said, we don't kill the horses willy-nilly. No, but you do kill them because 50 have died in horse racing since the turn of the year. And to back to your point, Simon, you know, like but you're about, driving a different agenda. You're, yeah, using, no, no, you're using animals I, as the vehicle I'm going for your answer, overall agenda, I'm which is about sustainability. That. And I'm going to answer that. Like, if if we were just about sustainability, we would be called Extinction Rebellion because they are. You out were called there. Animal Rebellion first. Yes, we were, and now mm. we've changed to Animal Rising because actually we are a bunch of people who love animals, and so we are in the majority. With or maybe the rest you're very clever nation. to aware that people, the no. public reaction to Extinction Rebellion is becoming tired of your groups. What we're what we're about is looking at the relationship we have with with animals where most that we, we we kill 80 billion land animals in this on this planet and trillion more fish every year the treatment of animals is right at the heart of the climate and nature crisis and to be honest it doesn't matter if it's settled in your mind or not it's settled in the scientists no, no it's so not let's, that's not yes, true let's carry that's on that's not true so what we need but that's not true we, yes it, but that's not act, true you, said you don't get to mind. say that that's not true you said it's it not settled, settled scientifically no i didn't i said it's not settled scientifically you said it wasn't settled in your mind I so said i'm going to carry no, on no i didn't i said it's not settled I'm, scientifically i'm going to carry on with you answering this yeah we desperately and deeply care about animals and that's why we act and we see billions of animals suffering in the food system, on the on the but on is law the, breaking the, the only way to act. We are a non-violent movement, yeah. So and non-violence and disruption have always been quite compatible. You only have to look at Gandhi and Martin Luther King for that, yeah. So we have always been non-violent. We our plan was always to disrupt this race without the horses being on the course. So we are a non-violent movement. I just want to make that very clear. Your one hundred percent essential download, outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken. Don't forget to leave a five-star review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode.